The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm Sean Rapier. I'm your host of the show. Welcome to episode three uh, we've got a really great show for you today. Uh, our guest today is a, an LDS icon. He's an actor. He is a comedian. He is a writer, and he is a very well-recognized public figure. A little uh, word of caution, um, he is going to be speaking very openly today in our interview uh, about uh, trials that he's had, including drug abuse. So if you are listening with children, parental guidance is suggested, though he does not go into any deep detail uh, of anything inappropriate. But it's a great conversation with an incredible guy. And so without any further ado, here is the conversation. All right. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, a man who's been a friend of mine for a very long time, a very talented guy. Please welcome Mr. Michael Berklin. Michael, <laughs> how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Or I should say Mike B. Michael B., yeah. When did that uh, switch over to Michael B.? Well, actually, you know what? Michael B. was something uh, my coach called me in sixth grade because he couldn't pronounce my last name. And then I was Michael B. kind of all through school, and then I went on my mission, and no one called me that. And then I was in college, and someone comes up and goes, ah, Michael B. And I go, why do they call you Michael B.? And ever since then, people call me Michael B. So it's now a branded stage name, which I just at a default. Yeah, somebody this week, uh, I was talking to them, and I said, oh, I have Michael Berklin coming on. And they said, oh, I don't know who that is. I said, <laughs> you know, Michael B.? And they went, oh, my gosh, Michael B.? <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here, Michael. It's Thank it's you. fantastic. So let's get to know Michael B. a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, where you grew up. Um, okay, so I was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, you're welcome. And, uh, and then when I was, uh, <laughs> no one ever cheers for that. Yeah. Uh, my parents moved there right before I was born. Uh, they are living in San Francisco, and they thought that the schools and things were getting a little more dangerous, so they decided to move out at the end of the 60s. And um and then, uh, yeah, and then I finished, went on a mission, and I really never went back. I mean, I got, I visited a couple times, but it's ironic. I never thought I would live in Utah, and now I've been here more than... More than you were in Tennessee. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And you have how many kids in your family? Uh, so there are seven kids in my family. Um, none of us live in Tennessee, actually. My parents moved out here just up the street from here. And uh, I have one brother in the south. He's in Florida. So I have six or five brothers, one sister. Um, most of us are here on the on the West Coast, but uh, and I'm not really sure. Again, I'm not sure how we all came out to the West Coast and just stayed here. I don't know if our family just like ah, we need to go back. I don't, I don't know. And the, uh, and you were raised in the church. Yes, my parents uh, were converts um, about three years before I was born. Oh, great! I, I think yeah, three or four years before I was born. Three of my brothers were born at the time. Wow. So yeah. they converted and then you, yeah. you, but you did grow up in the church. How was the I church did. in the South different than, than the church in Utah or even, you know, I grew up in California where there's a pretty big LDS population, but I, I, my understanding of the South is it's not, 
you know, not as many members there. Yeah. Oh, not even close. Visitors are welcome. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, the it, it's kind of interesting. The the steak. When I was a younger child, the steak center. We lived in Chattanooga, which is South Central Tennessee. At the very top of the state above us was Knoxville. That was our steak center. But our steak went from West Virginia to the middle of Alabama. It was so your steak was just massive. Oh, huge. So steak conference. So how far did you drive for church? Uh, church. Well, when I was young, they had they had acquired a building, and we were maybe fifteen minutes away. But then when uh, we uh, were one of the families that had to help work the church farm, I was a young boy, and it takes about forty minutes to get to church. Wow. And that was short for some people. There were people that were going an hour. So when you went home home teaching, you would go like eighty miles one way, come back to your where you were, and then go forty the other way. That was normal. That's so so different from our experience here in Utah. Oh yeah. So growing up, I when did you know you were funny, or when did people start <laughs> telling you you were funny? I know it's such an awkward question, um, but uh, <laughs> when did you kind of have that moment when you realized you could make people laugh? I, you know, and you're not from the same generation, so you you remember there was a golden era of Saturday Night Live, and if anyone's from our generation, yeah, of course, yeah, they'll they'll come and Saturday night you'd watch it, and on Sunday at church you'd spend pretty much every waking second it wasn't in class. Like, can you remember that part where, um, and then do you remember that scene where John Lithgow came in, meanest Methodist minister? I mean, people would remember these things, and we talked about them over and over. They were but, our heroes. Yeah. And I, I would impersonate. People would laugh more when I impersonate people. And I thought, oh, that's funny. Because I, my brothers always thought it was really funny. But all my brothers are really funny. Yeah, I've met a few of your brothers. They yeah. are funny guys. So if we're get together, I, I would have thought more brothers would have gone into comedy or something. But uh, they're, they're all corporate American yeah, kind of business people. guys. Yeah. yeah. So you, you served a mission. Where did you serve your mission? Uh, Sacramento, California. Yeah. Great place. Great place. Yeah, it was really really interesting. My my father grew up in Sacramento, Redding, and then in San Francisco. So I went right back. I served in a lot of areas that he grew up in. And Did you what, meet people that he had known? No, but let me tell you what's funny. When my parents uh, joined the church, come to find out, they on both sides they had people that came across the plains. But they didn't know because they weren't active in the church anymore. My grandfather, Olaf, took my dad to church once when he was, I think, 11, if I remember correctly, baptized him. It's, my dad doesn't... He doesn't remember anything no, else no. about the church. So when they put their names in to get baptized, when the missionaries <laughs> tracked it into him, uh, they were like, hey, Dave, you're actually already a member of the church. That is amazing. Yeah. Also amazing, you had a grandfather named Olaf. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. That is a really great name. Yeah. My parents both are first American in their families. Wow. From where? Uh, Norway. My dad's family is Norway, um, England, Scotland. Yeah. And my mother's Italy and... All Europe. Yeah, yeah, all Europe. Yeah, very cool. So on your mission, uh, you get home. Where did you... Did you go home to uh, Tennessee? No. Well, I mean, I did. I, I got home and every, everyone on my mission was said, hey, we're going to go to Rick's. And I... Rick's, I which really, is now BYU-Idaho. Yeah, BYU-Idaho. I didn't know much about Rick's. When you, when you grow up in the South, you or anywhere that's not Utah, you want to go to BYU, and you don't realize that the entire church youth can't go to BYU. Yeah, there's just not enough room. But you don't think that it's you, you want to go to the Mecca. But a lot of guys are saying we're going to go to Rick's. So I said I called my parents and I said, "Hey, I want to go to Rick's." 
Like, okay, great. Your brother went there. I don't even remember. I had one brother went there for like a semester <laughs> or something. Um, and then another brother went uh, as well. But uh, so I got out there and I realized that it was not not my jam. It was okay. I I, I didn't not enjoy it necessarily, but wasn't way for too you. Cold. No, not yeah, not for me. So that is that when you went came to Utah? Yeah. In fact, in fact, I came to Utah specifically um, for entertainment. Because I knew that Utah was the third highest filmmaking state. And it's funny because I always I want to be an actor, but I it seemed like an impossibility because again, my generation, the people that were in plays in theater in school, I had people I want to hang out with. Yes. Yeah. And it's they're more mainstream or normal now, but back then, um all black, white makeup, you know, eh, yeah, I don't, yeah. We don't want to hang out. So I thought, I don't know how it works. So I, I didn't know how it worked. And I had so you, came to, you came to Utah hoping to be a, a film actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just, luckily, it, from the very beginning, I met a few people. Actually, you and I met a few people kind of at the same time. And in fact, I... So my, do you remember when we met? Because I do. So I'll, I'll just... I'll just uh, tell I'll, me. I'll say it, yeah. So we were... I was doing stand-up. We moved here my wife and I from Utah and from I had Utah? gotten, sorry, moved here to Utah from California. <laughs> I just wanted to throw everybody off. So we'd gotten here and I'd gotten an agent, Stacy Eastman. And hey, that's right. we were at the Eastman agency and I got a call and they said, Hey, we've got this party that this very wealthy couple wants a stand up comedian oh, for their, God. for their anniversary. <laughs> And they said they are, you know, they're willing to pay. And it was a lot of money at the time for a 45 minute show. And they said, we were going to audition comedians, which nothing better than auditioning stand up comedy in front of like two people. And it was their kids that were putting on the party. So I showed up and I was sitting in the lobby thinking, oh, there are going to be 10 comedians here. And there were two of us, me and Mike B. And that's it. And it was the two of us. You went in and auditioned. You came back out. I went in and auditioned. I came back out and you and I started talking and I was sure that you were going to get it because you were so much funnier than I was. And I said, and I said, why don't we share the show? Why don't we split the, we'll just split the money. We went in and presented it and they said, oh, good, because we couldn't choose between the two of you. And so we ended up, uh, Michael and I ended up spending five nights straight. We worked probably 20 hours on this one show, wrote a whole (laughs) custom show and I I think we made 500 bucks and split it or yeah. something, you know. It was huge money. Yeah. Huge money back then. And their names were Bob and Dot. Bob and Dot. I still remember that. <laughs> well, and I, I don't know what, where it came out, but I remember we were performing for that family. And uh, and then all of a sudden it came out that Bob was really proud that he had pretty feet. Yeah. Yeah. That was his big thing. I think we've talked about that for the last 20 years. Yeah, that Bob has pretty feet. He's probably got pretty so, feet. So that's the first time I saw you perform. And my impression of you... I'll, I'll tell you, and I've, I've spent a lot of time with you and other comedians. There are people who are great stage comedians, and we have a lot of friends who are amazing on stage. And then when you sit and talk to them, you think, how is this guy so funny? Because in person, he's not. You are a great stage comedian, but you also own a room. And whenever we were all among the comedians, everyone would look to Michael to laugh. Really? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I always so, look to you. Maybe we just played up each other well. So... You get into more stand-up. Now, when when did you get married? I got married the first time in 94. Uh, yeah. And then 
uh, and then the second time in 2000. Gosh, you can't mess this one up. <laughs> yeah, don't it's, mess it up. It's 2013. Okay. No, 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 no. What year is it? 2012. Okay. Because we just were married four years on June 29th. Cool. So, so right? it would have been 13. Was there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Zara's born the year 2014. Okay. Okay. It's 20, 2013. 2013. Okay. So, so going back, you, you were a young married couple and then you started doing uh, commercials. Yeah. In fact, it's funny about this too, because at Eastman Agency, I remember you and I started booking everything back to back. And like Sean would get it, or I would get it, and Sean would get it, or I would get it. And Stacey's like, we send out these hot guys already. That was a light offense. Um, and no one's getting And then you and Sean come in, and it was like month after month. I remember it was the place that gives you the free ski passes or something. What's it called? The hamburger place? The uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a Utah Arctic Circle. Oh, Arctic Circle. And you yeah. got some Arctic Circle. And then I got some. Back, oh, yeah. back, back, back. We booked, we booked four Arctic Circle commercials in a row. Yeah. You, me, you, me. Yeah. That's so bizarre. We were doing a lot of commercials at the time. Yeah. And, and then I, every time them. I turn on the TV, you were on. Yeah, same with you. Yeah. I, we, we, were, were we were huge in 96. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. But then then uh, things then really took off for you in the public eye with the whole Mormon film movement. Tell me how that came about. So this is interesting. My uh, a guy I grew up with, Tommy Ham. Uh, he kept for a long time said, "You got to meet this friend of mine. He's a filmmaker. He's a director. Blah blah blah." And then he go tell him, "Hey, you got to meet my friend. He's a comedian. He's really funny. Whatever." We randomly met each other on our own because I was working at a building across the street. Kurt Hell. Kurt Hell. Yeah, great and, filmmaker. Uh, and he's like, "Wait a minute, are, great guy. Are you Tommy's. Wait, are you Tommy's friend? Like, we realized we we're the guy that was trying to put us together for the last couple of years." So we kind of started talking about what they were doing. And there was a script that John Moore had written that they ended up shelving and said, hey, let's do a Mormon comedy. So John wrote his life story, which is the singles ward. But the I think it was the Redeeming L.A. was the first one that we were actually going to do. And then they changed it all. And then I kind of got involved with them on the acting side. And then I kind of talked them into distributing things for them. I had worked in distribution with the uh, video and DVD. And so I thought it, it can't be that much different. It was totally different, but I knew I could figure it out. And with Dave Hunter paying out literally hundreds of dollars a month, I couldn't say no. And no, I'm just kidding. It's a, but it was an awesome experience for us. But I get to learn more about that on the on the distribution side about why you do what you do. But that's it all kind of started in year 2000, and we made uh, we made uh, singles work during actually during 9/11. Oh, really? Yeah. You were filming during 9/11. 9/11, and uh, a couple people that were working on the film. Their spouses were there, and their building was actually oh, wow. sheared in half. No kidding. Yeah, it was nuts. It was crazy. What a crazy time. So yeah. Singles Ward comes out, and, well, I guess going back before that, what which you were not involved in was God's Army, kind of kicked off the Mormon film yeah. movement. Most people think of that as kind of the first big LDS yeah. film. And then Singles Ward comes out as the first comedy, and it was... I mean, it's hard to remember how big that film was. Singles Ward yeah. was instant hit. I mean, that, so once Singles Ward came out, were you just recognized everywhere you went? Yeah. In fact, it was, um, it, it didn't, I was out pushing the film as well, going to different cities, et cetera. So I was kind of in the public eye. Some of the other guys would come. Darren would come. Darren came, I think, most of the time, and then Kirby would come to some of them. Will this is was, Darren Tufts. Yeah, Darren and, Tufts. And Kirby Hayborn. Yeah, in fact, Darren's movie just 
Open yeah. up. Yeah. I we love, love you, Sally Car- Carmichael. It's great movie. She's getting great reviews. Darren's so, very talented. Guy. Yeah, he incredible writer. I, I love it. The, uh, oh, and Dave Nibley, who's been in some of those yeah. other films, he's also a producer on. Yeah, and then he acted Carmichael. as well. Yeah. Have you, did you watch the film yet? Uh, no, we're going to go see it next okay, weekend. Okay, good. We went to the premiere. They, uh, Dave threw some some quick last second tickets. I live around the corner from the theater, so that's it's nice. Convenience, nice. Mostly, but anyway, so um, at that point, uh, I, I think I, I was more visible. Uh, I was always at a Desert book, or I was at a Covenant book, or I was at a Seagull, or I was always somewhere. So I was kind of like on the cover, but then they always saw my face a lot. And then when we did any kind of media coverage, it was me, Dave, and Kurt all the time. So I think that kind of got me more publicity. But I- I'll be honest with you, it- the person who gets the majority of it still to this day is Kirby. Sure. I have been told that I've I've taken pictures as Kirby because I've not been able to <laughs> tell them I'm not. Dude, in the RM, you were so funny. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did my hair different. Huh? What? You know, when you came off your mission, I was like, oh, that's Kirby. Yeah, Kirby the character. And you, uh, uh, no, Kirby's the real name. Right. So when you came off and I was like, it's not even me. You and Kirby look nothing alike. Yeah, we look nothing alike. I'm about 375 pounds heavier than him. Um, he, uh, it, it, but I, I get to the point where I was like, yeah, it was Kirby. I just take pictures and people would tag Kirby Hayburn's name, which is not my name, on uh, Facebook. In, into, into into their pictures. Yeah, it was really fun. Oh, that is really, really funny. <laughs> That's terrific. So you did a few of those films. You did uh, the RM. Yeah, RM, then Home then Teachers. The Home Teachers, which you and uh, you know a close friend of mine also, Jeff Burke, Jeff who's Burke. just so talented and funny. <laughs> and then uh, I got to dip my toe into the... Uh, Waters of Hailstorm and all the Mormon movies with you. Yeah. With a little film Latter-day Night called uh, Latter-day Night Live, which was just a lot of fun. That was me, you, Adam Johnson, Dave Nibley, Jeff Burke. Jeff Burke and yeah, that was a lot of fun, which oh. was all Mormon stand-up comedy. That was just a fun night to record. Fact, it, you know, so. someone get a copy and put it on YouTube or something. Because yeah. I, I think they stopped. They went out of print because they sold all the copies. And then... Um, they don't really redistribute, but that's still I almost every week of my life I guess I'm ah Latter-day Night Live. It Yeah, and that was a long time ago. Yeah. And then uh we get to the movie Church Ball. And Church Ball kind of uh you know, I actually had a conversation, a long conversation with Dave Hunter one day just talking about LDS film, and it's funny because he considers he well, what he mentioned to me was that if if uh, Singles Ward was kind of the kickoff of it, Church Ball was kind of the death of that <laughs> type of genre, at least, you know. What was your experience like working on Church Ball? Um, personal or acting? Oh, both. Personal, it was, it was horrible. Um, on the acting side, um, I, I kind of got to see, I got to work with, you know, quote-unquote A-list, B-plus, A-minus-list actors, and then us. And we were with Kurt and Dave all these years. We know them so well. So they kind of know each other's nuances and whatever. But watching how they came in, quote unquote, pro. But I remember one day we're on set and Andrew, he's the brother. What's their last names? Wilson. Uh, Wilson. Andrew Wilson. Yeah. Comes which on. Is, which is uh, Owen Wilson's brother. Brother. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Uh, so we're doing this scene. And I don't think he liked me. And I think it's because um, I was always getting people laughing. I was always keeping it light. Because, sure. you know, Hellstrom sets are like, we're going to shoot for 10 hours a day. And it's always 17. Yeah. And so we've got to keep things light. And so we're doing the scene. And, uh, and he goes, 
Did you forget your line? While we're rolling, and this is film. No, 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 no. This was this was digital. It wasn't film. And uh, and I was like, yeah, it's it's called timing. Maybe you should try it. And he <laughs> nice. was like, oh, you want me to try it? And I was like, uh, oh no, keep keep your LA sass down. Wow, because I'll get redneck real quick. But so Kirk kind of separated us for a little while, and then he came one night to the comedy club, Fat Dumb and Happy's that me and Johnny and Brett on. Oh, that's right. And then all of a sudden, his the tables turned, and he was like, oh well, this guy is more than just Andrew did. Yeah, oh. and ever since then, he was really nice. But it, the the set itself was kind of a unique atmosphere, said the yeah. least. And everyone was afraid to talk to Fred Willard. So to this day, me and Dave are still just angered by this. So. He's like, man, who wants to interview him? I'm like, I'll interview him. So I went to the lunch table, and I just ran a camera, and I just talked to him. Yeah, Fred Willard's so brilliant. Oh, he's so funny. Even off camera, he's so funny. And then Dave lost that tape. Oh, no. So it never went on the church wall. But Such it was an interesting funny. cast. You've got uh, you've got uh, Gary Coleman yeah. was in that. And you know who's just strikingly funny in that is Cena. Cena. Cena oh, Cena is just such a brilliant talent. So you, you had a very talented cast there and that was a big a big budget and that was kind of the last i think of kind of that if, if it were yeah, a genre kind of we did single second word right after that's right oh yeah because okay. dave was like okay we can't go out like that yeah yeah you did single second yeah. word i totally forgot about that that's right I, so did everybody else uh, but <laughs> no that was a great run and yeah, you know, I, I liked it. i'll tell you people bring it up all the time i mean those films I think, uh, you know, Singles Ward, Single Second Ward, The RM, The Home Teachers, and Church Ball are kind of a collection almost. A lot of the same actors, a lot of the same, you know, yeah. it's Dave and Kurt. Those are beloved films. I think people still watch them all the time. Uh, people, every day of my life. So, hey, you're the guy from Singles Ward. Of all the movies to remember, Singles Ward, they must have watched the most. And every day, someone new comes up to me, literally every day. It's awesome. It's yeah. very, very cool. So going in back into your personal life at that time, now you had uh, three children. Three, yes, that's uh, correct. With, in, in your first marriage, and uh, and then you kind of hit uh, a bumpy time. Yeah, very, a very yeah, bumpy time. To say the least. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what what kind of started that that time in your life. Well, I mean, if you want to be technical, it's selfishness, pride. I mean, but the uh, I, uh, I found that... The way I was raised by very old, old school parenting, my expectations of life and relationships were so different. I, the same feeling I had when I went on a mission, I had no idea that there were guys that didn't want to be there. I didn't know that existed. Every mission that became Tennessee, I was like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that elder. I could, I could rattle off names from when I was a young boy. That's how much I remember the elders growing up. Then I got in the mischief and I thought, wait, why don't you want to be here? And it wasn't until I moved here I realized there was a social expectation with the person here that I didn't grow up with. If you didn't, if you don't want to go on a mission in the South, they want to make sure you stay active in church. They want to make sure you're getting sealed in the temple and staying in. And out here, if you don't go, you know, you girls aren't going to date you or people would ostracize you or whatever. And that happens sometimes. And I think that stigma is going away, but I think yeah. certainly. A number of years ago, I think a lot of people felt that. Yeah, sure. it, that was, I think the that church was, is working really hard to to get. I know I work with young men, and I know there are a lot of programs now where that stigma is going away. Yeah, which is it's really good, which is really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I felt the same thing about marriage. I, I realized that my mom and dad just love each other. They loved each other the day they met, and they loved each other 
And they're in the, my dad's 82 years old. And they still hold hands and they still interlock legs and they're always hugging on each other. Well, I, how they communicate with each other and how they support each other, I didn't know how opposite that can be in real life. Yeah. And I just, I was fortunate to be raised with, and not that I had perfect parents, but they, the way they sure. treated each other was great. And in my marriage just did not, it, it was my fault. You know, it was a very selfish person. I, I don't know if it's like the uh, extreme attention deficit disorder that I consistently have, but I, there are times I look back in my past, I, there are years have gone by. I don't remember them. I was so focused on something else. I would come home. I'd always just delve into with my children, but I never rebuilt that relationship with my ex-wife. And I, and I think we kind of knew that early on that it was kind of, yeah. I'm not speaking out loud. I can't speak for it, but it's doomed. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you don't get divorced. You you don't do that. You just you work it out. You keep going. And we never don't think. We never went to therapy. We never did any, any of those things. So I just kind of like started living my own life on the side, a secret life. And kinda for had two lives going. Yeah. And I chose uh, drugs and alcohol uh, to kind of. And no one knew. It wasn't like I went and. Party with friends, but I don't think you knew secretly. Well, so your life really bottomed out. Oh yeah, and bottomed out in a very public way. Yeah, uh, I mean to the extent that there were magazines and newspapers running articles about your life and some of the behaviors you had. I remember yeah. uh, one night that you may not remember, but uh, I called you and was very worried. And I went over and picked you up, and we went out and got a couple of soft drinks. And we sat in a car under a bridge for about two hours talking. And you were uh, probably under the influence of something. Yeah. You weren't uh, you weren't quite yourself that that night. And uh, I'm <laughs> this is a podcast. So I'm trying, <laughs> you know, not to cry, but it was one of the most heartbreaking nights of my life. That was a difficult one. When did you really hit rock bottom? When did you when when did you just say this is no longer livable? Um, I uh, and I do remember that night. It's one of the few nights I do remember, th- remember thinking this. Uh, I it was uh, June first, and it was uh, my son's birthday, and I didn't remember. It's my son Perrin, and. Um, I had just, I don't know what I did, to be honest with you. I don't know what drug or drink I did together. All I know is I ended up on the side of the road, on off Geneva Road. And I was butt naked out in this field. My clothes are kind of spread out. The car's running. And it was morning. And to this day, the people that were there, I, I don't have memory from about three months before that night. Um, so that was a... a, a Something clicked. I, I, it sounds like it's really dramatic and it's this great scene or whatever, but it's really not. It was horrible. I get home and my ex-wife said, don't forget it's your son's birthday today. And that's when, man, it just, it, it hit. I, something about his birthday and my oldest boy and I was becoming the literally the worst example of a human being, let alone a father. I, I, 
completely opposite how my father was with me. And, uh, and so I told myself I will, I will never touch a drug and I never have since that day. So you found yourself then divorced, divorced yep. um, struggling to stay relevant through all that as a father and then became the time to turn around. What's that like? Michael, when you're, when you're that far down and you're that much of a public character, and like I said, <laughs> somebody came over, it may, may have been my dad, and said, look at this article about Michael. And, you know, it was kind of chronicling, like, here's a Mormon icon who has crashed. Yeah. What, what's that like trying to work your way back? Um, it was really hard because, and I can tell you on a, in one hand who did not throw a judgmental stone. Everyone, people that I thought I was close to, I thought I could go to. Um, but it's you, Dave Nibley, Billy Light, Nate Keller, and my buddy Dustin Chafin in New York. You know Dustin? Yeah. Um, other than that, literally, I've, I've, I, I, I couldn't believe what I'd heard from other people. And uh, I, I think people are my friends. What I found is that I had created fair weather friendships, and I'd always done that. I was always laughing at the part. I kind of bought into like, oh, Mike, you come in and make the jokes and make everybody laugh, whatever. But I realized as time went on, I really only had a few friends, which is mm. normal. That's for everybody. Um, there were a lot of people cheering for you behind the scenes that I think you maybe didn't see, too. Because I would yeah. talk to people... And, you know, you and I didn't talk a lot during that time. I think That's you, know, a shame. you you didn't return my phone calls yeah. sometimes, and and uh, but and, which I totally get now. But <laughs> people would call me and say, how's Michael doing? I think you had a lot more people cheering for you than oh, you may thank perceive. Goodness. Gosh, I, I, I do. I mean, I, I know that because people would ask me. They'd say, well, when you see him, tell him, tell him, you know, we're thinking about him. But you were you were a little bit absent. Um, yeah, it's understandably, a, like yeah, on purpose. Know. I yeah. kind of disappeared on purpose. To be honest with you, of I, course, because there, I don't. Even, it, it's hard to go through a life changing experience, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. But then when you have someone staring at you all the time, and this whole thing about there's this article they did um, for their Christmas article for um, City Weekly. It's not something I wanted to do. Someone was doing a story on me because you know they're kind of known for being anti Mormon. And the guy thought it was really fascinating that I was going to go back. I was trying to rejoin the church. So he's like, well, why would you want to do that? Because they don't understand testimony and lifestyle, et cetera. And uh, so a friend of mine who they had done an article earlier said, you know, you should probably talk to him. That story's a little off, but he's really honest about where he is. So he took me aside. I tell him this whole story about my life. I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a lot of – Stephen Dark was his name. was the author. I said, I'm going to give you a bunch of phone numbers. And you can contact whomever. And you get your own story. Here are people that like me, people that don't like me, people that work with me, people that hate me. And it's kind of funny, because we mentioned earlier, I always thought Darren Tufts did not like me. Oh, I, I really? thought he was one of the funniest dudes ever. And one of the nicest guys. Yeah, he's super nice. I mean, I don't think nice. Darren dislikes anybody. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. And I, it's just the way I misread him, because I didn't know him yeah. before we started making the movies. And we talked once, and he was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I think... And I, it totally That's changed. He's I, the yeah. nicest guy on earth. Um, so, because uh, I would have never, to be honest, I didn't really want to tell that story because I have yeah. daughters and a mother. Of course. And uh, But they're going to do it anyway. So fortunately, the majority of it's 
pretty accurate and true. Yeah. I mean, they do their own spin on it, so it kind of sure. makes it look a little different. But what was so we know what the public. I mean, how hard it must have been in public. You just told me when you're alone at that time, and you look and you see, okay, you know, my relationship with my kids isn't where I want it to be. I've spent a few years on drugs and alcohol. I've, you know, kind of lost this. It's one thing when you're in public. What's it like fighting back when you're alone, when you're kneeling down to pray? What is that? What's what's that feeling? What did you go through? Um, despair, sorrow, uh, a type of, it's a type of despair I could never explain. If the, the one thing I did not take into consideration because I, like a lot of people, you, the Holy Ghost becomes this permanent fixture inside of you that you don't initially go to enough. But when you no longer have it as a constant companion, <laughs> there is a, a despair you can't. I wouldn't want an enemy to have that feeling of darkness. And uh, it's just, uh, I remember, I remember the feelings I have. And I remember them every morning when I wake up. Every morning I wake up, my eyes open, and I remember the thousands of nights that I woke up in the morning and felt hopeless. And uh, I, I, for for all the people who feel like oh, I've made this mistake, I don't have the spirit. I, you always have it, but when it's taken away, it's. Like having your arm removed, it's it was so difficult because you would pray, I would pray, and I would fast or do whatever, and I, I I knew I needed to do it out of obedience. I knew it was important. I knew I had to do those things. There was no, ah, you feel good, you get that comfort feeling of like, oh, I'm so glad I fasted. I got absolutely nothing, zero, but I knew it was right. Because unlike most people, I, I never associated my choices with doctrines. It's kind of like a, it must be just something people do as like a fad where they're just like, oh, I'm going to go start drinking. So obviously Joseph Smith isn't a prophet anymore. As if Joseph Smith has anything to do with, with me. With your own drinking, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I noticed people, and they would talk about it. Uh, even when you're high or drunk, they're like, yeah, man, the church. Like, why are you talking about the church right now yeah. at a bar at two in the morning? Yeah. You must love him because yeah. you can't shut up talking about him, you know? Um, so I it was I knew those things, and I've always known those things. But I had to kind of yeah. really... Get back to it. So if, yeah. this, if this were a movie, you know, in three acts, you've, you've bottomed out, you've kind of lost everything, and then the rebuilding begins. But you meet someone very special. I, I do. <laughs> which is your lovely wife. Tell us about her. Um, my wife, Fernanda, we, uh, we met at a gas station. I'm old school. I don't do the online thing. It just is not jive for me. <laughs> so we, we meet up and we just like all great click. romances. You yeah. Meet at a gas, a gas station. <laughs> at a gas Perfect. and sip. Um, the gas and sip. <laughs> that's a reference. Only yeah, the people like will get. Okay. Um, the, uh, we, we talked for hours, literally by our cars. Yeah. Neither one of us there getting gas. 
Um, and, uh, and at the end, I, I didn't even Did get she her... know who you were before? Yeah. In fact, met... It's kind of funny. Cause when she first came in, she goes, I literally just watched the home teachers. I mean, I just watched it. And at this point I'm, I've been pretty down and I, I started working out like a, like a horse. So I was 160 at the time. I was really small. She's like, ah, it's weird. Like I, you were so heavy on st- on oh, screen, yeah, yeah. and now here you are, an Adonis, felt, <laughs> ripped, ripped. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and I, uh, and my first thought was like, "Come on, man, don't, don't make it a movie thing." Like, I, I, not that I don't appreciate it. I always appreciate any person coming up. Um, but it, it quickly turned into, "Tell me more about you." And we went up by our cars, and we talked and talked, and then I remember she said, "Do you want my number?" And I said, "I don't." Because I, I mean, I did. That's a terrible pickup line, by the way. Is refusing the girl's number. I like to talk to you for seven hours and then bounce. No, Uh, it, I, I, it was. I was just going through this change in my life. I was very, very beginning, which Nate Keller really had a mass influence on me on turning this corner. And I, part of me, I didn't want her to see, or maybe I thought she didn't know. She knew. It's all over, ever. You could not know. Um, but I, I, I wanted time. I wanted space. Yeah. Um, and I knew there was no way I wouldn't meet her again. It's impossible. The connection was so heavy. And then when did you see each other again? Uh, we met August 10th. Yeah. 2007. Coming up on that. Uh, Thursday's 10 years, the day we wow. met, which is my daughter's third birthday. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's awesome. So we met again in December. And then I got her number, but I didn't, we didn't go out yeah. for a while. But then you got married. You dated, married. obviously, for, mm-hmm. a, for a while. For a few years, yeah. That leads us to something that's very personal for me, much more personal for you, but also an amazing experience, which is your rebaptism. Your rebaptism, uh, I'll just tell you I, a little bit of backstory from my, my point of view. I remember you called me and told me you were getting rebaptized. And I was so thrilled for you. And I can't remember what I had the day of your baptism, but I was supposed to be out of town or I had something that I couldn't get out of. And I remember uh, as we, the the night before something like that saying, it doesn't matter, I'm going to be there. And I just decided whatever it is can wait. And I went to your baptism, Nate Keller, who is uh, just a man beyond reproach, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. Uh, and a very talented guy baptized you. And that was the single most spiritual experience I've had in the last 10 years. Um, I remember walking in and seeing you, and you didn't think I was going to be there. And you came over, <laughs> and we stood in front of about 50 people and hugged and bawled our eyes out. Um, tell us what that day was like for you, Michael. <laughs> um. Gosh, it was almost perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um when so when you when you get rebaptized again, they don't give you a lot of time to plan something. And my parents were in the Dominican Republic, so they couldn't make it. Um but I had my brother Greg was uh was there, which is nice. My other brothers are really kind of they just didn't have time. Nate contacted whoever they could. Yeah, it was quick. Yeah. Um, so who, we, who sang at your baptism? <laughs> um, Alex Boyer. Alex Boyer yeah. sang at your baptism. 
And I wish it could have been recorded because it was, was it how great thou art? Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Yeah. I talk about having chills. He sang and it was unbelievable. Uh, Good of Alex, such a great guy to do that for you. Yeah. And that was, I was so glad because that was last second. I didn't think he was going to come and um, we know each other for a long time as well. And there was a, every, to be honest with you, it was everybody, almost everybody that needed to be there other than my family was there. Yeah. And it was, I, I was shocked. There. Yeah. I was, I was so glad. And um, so things have come full circle now. The boy who went out on a mission and preached the gospel, he's back in church, you're baptized, you're married. And so you've kind of got these two families. Yeah. So your oldest daughter, which this is amazing to me because I remember when she was born, is now a return missionary and getting married this Saturday. Yeah, this week from today. Yeah, amazing. So she's getting married, uh, and then you've got a son getting ready to go on a mission, and you've got another amazing daughter. And then you've got a second family. How old are they now? Uh let's see. And, and then there's Van. Who's, oh, and Van. Van, who's yes, almost 11. Yes. Van. Um, Van, he was, he was born, and then we divorced yeah. Shortly after he was born, and he's been. And how old's Van now? Um, he is. He turns eleven in October. So he's awesome. ten. So cool. He is. He is glue in our family. He's yeah. just unbelievable. Um, so Zara, she turns three next Thursday, and then Ford, he was born um, March 29th. So he's just a little over a year, and then my wife is due with our third, which is my seventh, um, September 27th. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a beautiful blessing. Yeah. So so now what all what all projects are you working on now? Uh, so a friend of mine and I we uh we produce uh pretty uh, well a lot together Danny Dressa who you actually grew up with. Danny's a very close friend. You know of what's mine. weird? Danny's the best. Everybody I worked around in film either you were involved or you grew up with, which is so yeah, strange. I grew, up with, I grew up with Dave Hunter and with Danny Dressa. Yeah. Yeah, Danny is one of my very, very dear friends. Let me tell you what's weird, Sean, how much our life is so wrapped around history of our life. The first date I went on when I was 16 years old, which my friend Rick the Carnivals killed me in my date. My date, who was back visiting, you grew up with too, Aaron McCann. Oh, that was your first date? Yeah, my very first date in Knoxville, Tennessee. Aaron is one of my favorite people in the world. She is just awesome. Awesome. And little did I know that later in life, like so many people from your town yeah. had such a, an effect in my life. In fact, the first short film I ever did was with you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, that's we won't even need to. We won't even, yeah. we won't even need we'll mention just, we'll the just name. Because student film and it's it was just, horrible. Yeah, it was, but it was. But that's <laughs> right. That was that was the first film I ever did, too. If you want to call it that. I'm air quoting film. Air quoting. <laughs> they so, ran film. So okay. what? So now you're working on all kinds of film projects. Yeah. I see you pop up in commercials all the time. Your wife has a thriving business. Yes. She and her sister own uh, Bohm Boutique, it's uh, they're in like I think nine states and they have eight or nine stores in Utah. Incredible, yeah, it's all women's really, clothing. Really, really cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of trippy. People always go, Oh, it's a power couple, film, and yeah, it, the two things you, you should never go into film and fashion and yeah. then restauranting. And then, <laughs> and yet, she is super successful and yeah. beautiful and wonderful. And and you've got this kid coming to, to wrap it up. When there are people out there who are down and out, there are people who are addicted, like you know, like you were using at least. There are people who think there's no path back. You've done it, Michael. You really, your life 
is a movie. I mean, it's, it's the, it starts off, things are great. Act two comes around, things fall apart. That night that we sat under the bridge, I was so heartbroken for you. And then to go sit in your baptism was the greatest day. I mean, I have no words to tell you what a blessing that was. And now you've got this beautiful family. You've got two beautiful families. <laughs> you've got your career back on track. You've kind of got things all together, Michael. What advice do you have for people who are struggling in the gospel? Um, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I get this asked so many times, like, how did you do it? What did you do? As if there was some David Copperfield magic and it is it is so simple you you just have to repent and be obedient it is literally that simple but in that course of restarting your life it's the people you hang out with it's the places you go everything in your life changes and it's so difficult to say goodbye because you do love those people but those people don't encourage me to become a better human being uh, not that they're trying to discourage me from being anything better, but I learned something when I was receiving uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost again. And this is what changed my life really forever uh, amongst the things that got me to that point. Because I look back now, if I, whatever it took, whatever it took to get me here, I'd do it. If I knew, I didn't know then. But that path I thought was just wrong, was bad, was filth. That was, and that is how you take your road back to the Lord. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life, is when the prodigal son turns, the father will always run to him, always, and he will always fall on your neck. And he will always kiss you. And he will clothe you. And he'll do it a million times. So anyone out there who feels like they, they've done something, they've gone too far. You can never, never escape his love and his forgiveness. Never. Never. That is what man does. It's not what God does. And, and he can make you out of stone all over again. I know that, and it's not something I know because I did something special. I did what was right at that moment, like all the thousands of millions of people have done the same thing. Um, so anyone, um, stop and gar- go on another path. You cannot go back and change your past. You can't go back and alter. All you have is today and to go forward. I look back and think, yeah, it's embarrassing, things in my past, things I've done. I wish I... But I really don't wish, because had all those things not happened, I could not become who I am now. And if I skipped all that and never became this and understand how much God loves me and all of his children, that would have wasted my life. Michael, you are a great man. You're a great father, husband, Latter-day Saint, You are still the funniest man I have ever met in my life. And I think that most of your friends, when we're all being honest, all the comedians used to hang out with, 
I think we'd all say that in a working a crowd, there is no one funnier than you are. Your story is inspiring. <laughs> too nice. And uh, you're like a brother to me, and I just love you. I and love you, too. Mike, thanks for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, whether he's Michael Berkland or Michael B. or Mike B., what a treat. Thank you. And now in my latter-day life, I have a couple of thoughts on grief and overcoming grief. Sorry, I didn't mean this to be a heavy episode, but uh, July is an interesting time for us. A wonderful time of celebration, summer's winding down, but also for us now it's a little bit different in that July is the two-year anniversary of the passing of my brother. He died two years ago at the age of 45, quite suddenly and unexpectedly in his sleep. And of course, that was very difficult for my family to deal with. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a plane and I was sitting next to a gentleman and he and I started talking and uh, we'll call him Randy. And Randy and I were talking to each other and uh, he mentioned that he was getting married soon. That led us deeper into discussing his life and that he already had two teenage daughters and uh through this discussion, it came out that he had been married before, and his first wife had passed away after a seven-year battle with cancer. He talked quite openly and frankly about losing his wife and about the struggle of of watching watching her suffer through this disease, and especially how difficult it was on his two teenage daughters. I can't imagine that kind of pain. I shared with him about my brother and what we had gone through, and I shared with him about the plan of salvation. And I told him what we believed, and I told him how much uh, help I had gotten and strength from turning to God during that time. And he looked at me and he said something so frank and honest, I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. He said, Sean, I can't reconcile God. And I kind of looked at him, uh, trying to understand exactly what he meant by that. And he said, I cannot sit here with you today telling you that I watched the woman that I loved go through so much and watch my daughters go through so much, and look you in the eye and tell you I know God lives. I can't reconcile him. I wasn't sure what to say, but before I could say anything, he then said, but I haven't given up. And I'm getting remarried, and I believe there's good out there, and I think that I'm learning more about it every day. And he said, now that I'm further away from it, I can see blessings. But I still am just not to that point where I can tell you I can completely reconcile Yes, God's there for me, but Sean, I'm not giving up. And he was such an inspiration to me. I think, you know, he told me a little bit about his growing up, uh, that he wasn't in a a strongly um, religious family, and that he's just kind of learning these things. But I was so struck by his honesty. And I think sometimes when we deal with times of grief and and our interview today was so fantastic with Michael and all the grief he's had to deal with, sometimes we think, well, why can't I be strong like other people I see? People who face trials or grief or struggles and immediately can say, okay, you know, but God's there for me. I know for sure. And I've been so comforted. Sometimes we don't feel it and that's okay. What matters more to me is not the part where he says, I can't reconcile God. It's the part where he says, I haven't given up. And I think sometimes, especially as members of the church, we think that we need to have all the answers. We see people who are strong through trials, and we say, oh, they're, they're so strong. We don't know what happens. 
at midnight in their lives, when they're kneeling down by their beds feeling all alone. We all go through our walk a different way, and Michael, what a great example to me, and uh, Randy, what a great example to me. Yes, he can't reconcile God, but no, he hasn't given up. I think if we uh, all can take that attitude that no matter what, we're not going to give up, we're going to keep moving forward, that is how we make it back. And uh, so thankful for those uh, good people. Thank you to Michael for coming in and being so candid. I told him before the interview, I said, you tell me what's off limits to talk about, and he said nothing. I hope that someone will resonate, and, and I have no doubt that many people will uh, with his story. Uh, and that's all we have for the show today. We want to thank you so much for tuning in. We are blown away by the number of people that have subscribed and that are downloading and streaming our show. We have another excellent guest next week, and uh, we're very excited for him. Remember, we can be found on iTunes, on Google Play, on SoundCloud, on uh, Stitcher. If you want to get a hold of us, please email me at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're Latterday underscore lives. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Latterday Lives podcast. Again, we just appreciate it. So many people have reached out. I'll tell you what, if there is nothing that means more to us here than when you share this with, with someone who might enjoy it. If you've got a friend who uh, is looking for something uplifting, whether or not they listen to podcasts, maybe you can can share this with them. And we've had some friends who have said, hey, I don't even know how to listen to a podcast. Maybe you can show them. We also really appreciate reviews. It helps us to show up um, higher on the rankings if you can give us a review. We have uh, many five-star reviews already on iTunes, and it just means the world to us. So uh, until we meet again, uh, this is uh, Sean Rapier for Latter-day Lives. And please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.